Good morning, church. I wasn't planning to start with this, but uh, as I shared some information with the elders and our prayer time before the service this morning, they and Joel actually and, and the other elders concurred to uh, say we always celebrate good things. So uh, on Thursday, I had the privilege of uh, doing the opening prayer of the sixth grade promotion at Kendall Whittier. I think it's the third time that they've asked me to do that, and it's always a lot of fun uh, seeing those sixth graders dressed up like adults and and, uh, and uh, getting their awards and all that. But I told the elders specifically that I was so proud of Jason Feathers and Faith Feathers. Now, if you'd gone to the event, you would have seen this is the Faith Feathers show. I mean, Faith, this is one of the awards she was getting. And it was like every other award she was coming up and getting something. And she actually gave a speech. She and uh, another young man, sixth grader, that's also in Jason's class, uh, gave a speech. And they were, uh, they were highlighted really pretty much as the students of the year. They didn't call it that, but that's what they were. And, uh, but then after the uh, – it was, it was, so it was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed being there. But after the ceremony was over, I was talking to Jason. He said, oh, excuse me. And he walked over, and he – he talked to the uh, young man who was the student of the year and, and their family. And I just overheard Jason affirming this family and how great a job they had done with their son and saying, you know, this is intentional parenting. This thing doesn't happen by accident. And he is just a, a good citizen and was a great student and wonderful attitude and worked hard. And I thought, wow, that's just great. You know, I mean, that Jason is not just doing what he's doing, but he's affirming the parents and he's affirming these kids. So we have, we have a, a man in that school who is uh, doing a wonderful job of uh, shining the light of Christ in a very real way. So thank you, Jason. And, and if, you see, if you see Faith afterwards, you might just tell her that uh, you need some wallpaper and she might give you some of the hundreds of certificates that she's gotten through the years student of the month, student of the year, student of this, student of that. So anyway, let me tell you a story about a mother who went to wake her son for church one Sunday morning, and when she knocked on the door, he said, I'm not going. Why not? asked the mom. Well, I'll give you two good reasons. One, they don't like me. Two, I don't like them. The mother said, I'll give you two reasons why you will go to church. One, you're 47 years old. Two, you're the pastor. <laughs> then there's a story of a man who skipped church to go hunting. Some of you may have heard this story. So he headed the hills, and he was going to do some bear hunting. And as he rounded the corner on a twist in the trail, he and the bear collided. And it sent him and his rifle tumbling down the mountainside. So before he knew it, his rifle went one way, and he was going the other. And he landed real hard on a rock, and he broke both legs. Believe it or not, that was the good news, because the bad news was that the bear was charging at him from a distance, and he couldn't move. So the man immediately started praying. He said, oh, Lord, I'm so sorry for skipping services today to come out here and hunt. Please forgive me and grant me just one wish. Please make a Christian out of that bear that's coming to eat me. Please, Lord. That very instant, the bear fell right down on his knees right in front of this guy, put its paws together and began to pray, Dear Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to receive. <laughs> now the truth in these brief stories is that we find a lot of reasons for missing church. 
If you're the pastor, I don't like them, they don't like me, okay? Or you want to go bear hunting. Some of the reasons are clearly legitimate, okay? Let me say we're not legalists here. If you miss church for a good reason, or even for a lousy reason, and there are lousy reasons too, your salvation is not in jeopardy. And you, didn't, you don't need to worry that God will send a bear to eat you. We're saved by grace, folks, and being in church, though clearly very important, as we're going to examine in detail this morning, doesn't earn us anything with God. But when the Word of God talks about our fellowship with one another, it does provide us reasons, incentives, and admonitions as well as warnings. The Word of God shows us how incredibly serious it is for us to be devoted to the fellowship as it tells us the early church was in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Now, the classic passage, and this is one that I've preached on before, as have others from this pulpit, is actually in Hebrews. It's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let me read that. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, and not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we see one of the dozens of uses of the phrase that we looked at a little bit last week in part one of this series in the New Testament, one another. And in just these two verses, we see it twice. We see one another. It's two words actually in English, but in the Greek it's one word. When you add up the repeated one another phrases, like love one another, which is used several different times in several different verses, there are about 40 unique verse uses of the phrase one another. Yet the Greek word that's translated into English as one another is actually used 100 times in 94 different New Testament verses. So I would say that the frequency of use alone should alert us to something that is really important. This is something we need to pay attention to. And here we see it used in the context of meeting together, like we're doing here now, this morning, with one another. Now, last week on Mother's Day, we looked at the first circle of our Christian lives. We looked at the home. We recognize that that's the first circle. It's the front line, right? One of the things we looked at was the reality that though it's often the hardest place for us to live out the implications of the gospel with our own families. It is, in fact, the first place that the gospel must be applied to our choices, to our relationships, and how we interact with each other. How we live our lives as believers in Christ at home is the front line of the gospel. It's the proving grounds, and it's an early indicator of how we will live out our lives in these other circles, the church, for example, the second circle we're going to look at this morning, and then moving out from there, the third and fourth circles, our neighbors, our work friends, our schoolmates, and the rest of the world. Today we're looking at the second circle, the church. If home is the front lines where the action first starts in living the implications, the instructions, and the outright commands of the gospel, then the church is a very close second circle for us. And most of the things that apply in that front line of the gospel, that first circle, apply just as clearly as we look at this second circle. There are a lot of similarities to the first circle and the second circle. We refer to church as a family, don't we? 
And that's a very real thing. One similarity has to do with the phrase I left you with at the end of last week's message. Anybody remember what that was? Okay. I thought all of you had probably slept since then, so I'll remind you. Covenant solidarity. Let me define that for you again. Covenant solidarity. In case you have, in fact, apparently slept since then and forgotten. Covenant solidarity is a principle of unity. And it doesn't come from shared personality traits. It doesn't come from mutual hobbies. It doesn't come from common interests. But it comes entirely from our shared interest in and love for Jesus Christ. It's also what we might call the tie that binds. It binds us together as a family. It binds us together as a church. It's a Jesus-centered form of relationship. And that's why it's important. And because of that, it should result in a total and undying devotion for those for whom he died. That's us. Those for whom he died. That's our fellow Christians, isn't it? So without this covenant solidarity, families will struggle at best and they will divide and experience strife at worst. The same can be said of churches. Without covenant solidarity, churches that are built on a lesser foundation than our mutual relationship with Christ are ripe for division. They're ripe for formation of cliques in the church. In other words, little subgroups in the church that have little to do with one another. You've heard the phrase, birds of a feather flock together. There's truth in that, and that may be fine for birds, and it may be natural for us. But in both the family and in the church, we don't necessarily get to pick those who are part of our family or part of our church. And if we did, there would never be any real diversity, there would never be any real unity, because we probably wouldn't choose those who were unlike us. That just comes naturally to us. That's part of the problem, think about it, with our public discourse these days. And sadly, that kind of public discourse, which is very fractured, very broken, is even coming into the church at large. We live in an echo chamber, only hearing what we want to hear from like-minded people. Now, I'm not thinking necessarily of the essentials of the faith, because let me say this, there are faith-denying influences that we can righteously avoid, and we should avoid. Yet there is a consequence of the way our public discourse is deteriorating. We're almost completely unable to engage each other in rational conversation about things that we disagree on. We talk or sometimes shout past each other. So, you know, I haven't heard of or witnessed this kind of thing happening here at TCF, unless I'm just not aware of it. So let's let this be an admonition to be careful that it doesn't happen here that we just will not let it happen here. One writer describes it this way. Christians who aren't on the same page politically, aren't on the same page politically, better recognize they're in the same book. If they don't, then there's a shameful schism coming to the church that will expose how enthrall we are to earthly politics as our true hope. If my Facebook page is telling me anything these past days, it's this. Many Christians are dangerously close to aping the partisanship of the world when it comes to how they view those who disagree with them politically. 
He goes on to write that if the church is to be any sort of cult, countercultural movement, let alone a witness to the one and other isms that are inherent in the gospel, we had better be able to model what it means to love someone who doesn't think like you. Someone who disagrees with you, maybe on a whole range of cultural and political ideas. We read in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, I urge Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here we see an example of a disagreement. And we don't know what these two women disagreed on. Scripture doesn't tell us. But it was not addressed as sin by Paul in his letter to the Philippian church. It was just a disagreement. The only admonition we have here is to agree in the Lord. Think about that. Why? Because while they're clearly not on the same page, they have a disagreement. And it's enough of a disagreement that Paul felt the need to talk about this in his letter to the church. But while they're clearly not on the same page, they are in the same book. That is the book of life that's spoken of in verse 3 of this passage. And they're in that same book, that book of life, not because of whatever they were apparently in disagreement about, but because they are both sinners saved by God's grace, whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life. This is another example, another example of covenant solidarity. Their relationships were to be rooted in Christ. Our relationships are built on the fact that we are in Christ. We can pick our spouses. We can pick the church that we come to at the outset. But in families, we don't get to pick our children. We don't get to pick our siblings. We don't get to pick our in-laws or the ever outward extended family like cousins and aunts and uncles. In churches, we do decide... We do have the luxury, really, of deciding where we want to fellowship. But once we join, we're kind of stuck with who's here. Unless we want to constantly switch churches to avoid the kind of people that we don't want to be with. Our natural inclination is to gravitate toward people with whom we have common interests or shared interests. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that as long as that's not our only source of relationships. And unless it becomes a means of division, like it apparently had become in Philippi. Now, I might hang out with some of those of you who are sports fans, because I am too. For example, Joel and I share a love of sports, and we spend time together as a result of that mutual enjoyment and love of sports. But if I only hang out with other sports fans... I'm missing something important. Instead of being interested in and finding time for fellowship with all my different brothers and sisters in Christ, I might isolate myself from those who don't share my interests. That's a very shallow form of relationship. You think about that? Hey, we're, we're friends because of sports. I mean, I like sports. Nothing wrong with sports. But is that it? Is that all we have going for it? We naturally seek out those who are like us. But without a cause bigger than us, we'll just follow our personal preferences, just like the rest of the world does. Folks, 
let me say this. The gospel is bigger than sports. The gospel is a cause bigger than a shared love of music or even style of music. The gospel is a cause bigger than a shared love of cooking or crafts or a hobby. The gospel is a cause bigger than anything else that might connect us in this room this morning. Again, nothing wrong with finding these other, let's call them supplementary connections in our first circle relationships in our families or in our second circle connections in the church. God allows us, by His grace, to enjoy fellow hunters or Star Trek fans or book lovers or Frisbee golf players or things like that. But in the fellowship, in the second circle, in the church, just like in the family, our solidarity, that is, our unity or agreement of feeling and action, must be based primarily on our mutual relationship in Christ. That's the only way the diversity, the differences we have, can be a benefit and not a detriment to the church. Now, it's interesting to me that the culture seems to think that diversity for the sake of diversity is enough, and it's a good thing. You've probably heard this phrase more than once, our strength is our diversity. I'm not sure that's true. I think diversity needs a foundation, a shared knowledge of something important, a shared understanding of something vital. And there's no more firm foundation than Jesus and being in Christ together. We know there will be diversity in eternity. Scripture tells us that. We get a picture of heaven in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And it's a picture of diversity. Let me read that. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Think about that. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. That's diversity. That's diversity. And it's a covenant solidarity. The common thread in this diversity, the foundation for this diversity is people being ransomed for God by the blood of Jesus, ransomed from sin and death. That's the tie that binds them. That's the tie that holds them together, even though they're from every tribe, language, people, and nation. They don't have much else in common sometimes. So folks, this is just a warm-up for what we're going to experience in eternity. That's why lack of covenant solidarity can be very deadly or a church. When making ourselves happy is the primary reason that we're at church, because, for example, we can connect with people with shared interests or shared preferences, then we're either going to be disappointed that there aren't enough of those people that share our interests, or people our age, or people with uh, the same musical tastes we have, and we're going to leave the church to seek out those shared interests, or we're going to grumble because we're not getting what we want. We're here together this morning not because we all think alike. Not because we all share the same preferences. Not because we all have the same interests. Not because we're all the same age. Not because we're all the same status. We're here this morning because 
of Jesus. We're here because Christ died for our sins. Remember what we noted last week. This is of first importance. Christ died for our sins. Paul wrote that to the Corinthians. We read that passage last week. And there's no stronger connection than that. There's nothing stronger. There's no greater tie that binds than the mutual faith we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, when something other than Jesus Christ becomes the uniting principle in the local church, the church becomes fundamentally idolatrous. That's a pretty strong word. To put it simply, people are coming to church for other reasons than out of love for God. Hatred springs up in idolaters' hearts when their idols fail to live up to their expectations. This is inevitable when the congregation has a principle of unity other than Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how, the question arises, how are we to love one another if we get in the habit of giving up meeting together? Hebrews 10, which we read near the beginning, gives us a pretty clear answer to how we can love one another when we meet together. The context of this passage is both warning and admonition to action. Any of us who've been in leadership of any kind for a while have seen people waver and then kind of wander away from this church, sometimes to settle somewhere else, sometimes not. Many of us have had to reach out to them to encourage them back into full fellowship, back to meeting together. And when we do this, we often turn to Hebrews chapter 10, which we read a moment ago. One of the things that we look at when we point out what Hebrews 10 says about meeting together is the warning part. And that's not inappropriate at all, because there is a warning here. Let me read the verses we read earlier with three additional verses, the one before and the two after. This is from Hebrews 10, 23 through 27. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then the verses we read earlier, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So I think the warnings here are actually pretty clear. Holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, as it says in verse 23, is clearly tied to the admonition not to make a a habit of neglecting to meet together, not making a habit of skipping church, to put it in more vernacular terms. And following that, we see in verses 26 and 27 the idea of sinning deliberately and a fearful expectation of judgment right after connected to the word for in verse 26. And again, that's the idea of getting in the habit of not meeting together. So we see this idea of not meeting together bookended by these warnings very clearly. The enemy of our souls is a lot like predators in the wild. This is the warning part. I love shows like Planet Earth or some National Geographic programs. Those are very interesting to me. 
They show the wonders of our world. They show God's creation. But they also show the reality of how cruel the world can be. You know what, folks? There are predators and there's prey. And even most of the fiercest predators will work to isolate their prey from the herd and then attack, meaning they can take down their prey more easily. And if you've seen these nature shows, this is what it illustrates. And this happens with us too. Isolation from our herd here at TCF can put you in a dangerous situation. You can become the devil's prey a lot more easily the more isolated you become when you're alone, when you're separated from the herd, than you can be when you're in the midst of the spiritual protection and the encouragement that God provides through his body, your church. So yes, there's a warning in this passage of Scripture. But you know what? There's a lot more than just the warning. There's an admonition. We insist that those who neglect to participate in the local church will encounter spiritual temptation, spiritual decline, and even spiritual death. And while all of this is true, it is not the emphasis of that passage. In fact, when we use the passage in this way, we are not displaying the divine urgency behind the text. The first sin of skipping church is the sin of failing to love others. I never thought about that before I began to study, and I actually read this article This passage's primary warning is that when we skip church, we put not just ourselves, but our brothers and sisters in Christ at risk. Why? Because the day, capitalized in many of your translations, because it's referring to a specific day. We're talking about the day of judgment. That day is drawing near. We don't have to believe that Jesus is returning tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or next decade to agree that the day is still nearer today than it was yesterday. So according to this passage, gathering together with your brothers and sisters at TCF is not primarily about being blessed. Well, I come to get blessed, okay, or protected spiritually. It's about blessing others. It's about encouraging others. It's about supporting and protecting others, just like all those one another phrases that we see in the New Testament. They're not about me. They're not about me. They're about how I relate to you. Each Sunday before the service, the elders gather in our conference room and we pray for the service. We pray for the preacher. Hardly a Sunday goes by when we don't pray something like this. Lord, please use all of us here. And in that prayer, we don't mean just the elders, but all of us here. Please use all of us here to encourage one another. And we talked about this just this morning, and we prayed along these lines just this morning. The elders are very aware of the burdens and challenges that all of you carrying into this auditorium each Sunday. And we realize something. We realize that there's no way that the Sunday sermon alone, the worship time alone, the prayer time alone, the communion alone can minister adequately to those who carry those burdens. It takes all of us. It takes all of us. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would minister through you just as much as we pray that the Holy Spirit would minister through us in the pulpit and the things that are happening here on stage. Your encouragement, your prayer, your presence. You know what? Maybe even just your greeting. 
maybe even just a greeting, might have more impact on someone here today than anything that's said from this pulpit. Yes, we believe the preaching of the Word is a critical component of every Sunday service, so I'm not diminishing these other things and saying they are without value. But just as, and in some cases even more so, your ministry here, your presence here, is what God uses to, as it says in Hebrews 10, encourage one another. That's the way it is, folks. God uses you. He uses all of us. The beginning of verse 24 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Now, the other elements of our meeting may, hopefully do, contribute to that stirring up. But the admonition is to us. It's to all of us. And consider means to think about. So think about this. Consider this. When was the last time you thought about how you could encourage someone here on a Sunday morning? Maybe somebody who's not even like you. Maybe you don't have any shared interests. Maybe they're older than you or younger than you. When was the last time you prayed and prepared yourself for the Sunday service? Well, gee, you may think, I don't have any responsibilities on Sunday. I'm not preaching. I'm not overseeing. I'm not doing sound. I'm not on the worship team. I'm not a greeter. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I'm not a nursery worker. I'm not providing security at the door. So I don't have to prepare. I don't have to pray. I might not even need to show up. But this passage tells us to consider, to think about, when was the last time you considered how to stir up a brother or sister to love and good deeds. So this is not written just to preachers. This is on you every bit as much as it's on me because you're a member of this body of Christ called TCF just as much as I am. Gathering with God's people meeting together, not just Sundays, but Wednesday or Thursday nights at a house church meeting, at basic, other occasions or events like the church picnic this afternoon, sharing other parts of our lives together outside the context of things we do together as a church, is not first about being blessed. Though we have to admit, that's often the wonderful gravy on the meat, isn't it? They're frosting on the cake. It's the great outcome of being together. Gathering with your fellow TCFers is about being a blessing. It's not first about getting for yourself, but it's about giving of yourself. So we should, well, back up, there we go. Too far. We should approach Sunday deliberately, eager to do good to others, to be a blessing to them. In those times we feel our zeal waning, when we feel the temptation to skip out on a Sunday or withdraw altogether, we should consider our God-given responsibility to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this text is not about us, but about them. This text is not for Christian individuals, but for Christian communities. We are bound together in a covenant solidarity as children of the covenant in Christ, established by his blood, we are to use the gifts that God has given us, our spiritual gifts, for the benefit of one another. And spiritual gifts doesn't have to be in the list of spiritual gifts we see in 1 Corinthians. There's all kinds of other spiritual gifts, like encouragement, like greeting one another. Those things, the Holy Spirit is in those things and can use us in those things. 
So this is for the purpose of strengthening and serving and encouraging and blessing each other. And there's not a one of us here today, or perhaps ironically not here today, who is not needed in this fellowship. Not a one of us. That's why we see all these wonderful analogies in the Word about the church being like a human body, with a big toe, for example, providing stability that the brain and the heart cannot provide. And that's why our covenant solidarity results in a total and undying devotion to those for whom he died. If we're devoted to the Lord, our devotion is always first to the Lord. But think of this. If Jesus died for you, and not just for me, then shouldn't my love for, my devotion to you, be a part of the practical outworking of the gospel in my life? And in this season where God is stirring us to evangelism, is it just possible that this is a part of what God would use to draw people to himself? When people come to TCF, maybe someone who's on the path toward salvation, and open to the gospel message, or maybe someone who's somewhat close to the gospel, what kind of impact will it have to see people of diverse interests, different backgrounds, different political views, different age, varying personalities, all here, all together, loving one another, deferring to one another, working with each other, being patient with each other, at peace with one another, forgiving one another, serving one another, all those great one anotherisms that we see in the New Testament. So here we are together, folks. We're in our second circle. We're with our church family. The first circle, gospel front line, is our own families. Second circle, very, very closely related. So here we are together. The second circle where the admonition is to encourage one another and not get into the very bad habit of not meeting together and we don't do this not just we don't do this for the sake of our own spiritual well-being although that's part of it i do it for the sake of your spiritual well-being amen heavenly father we do thank you for these reminders these admonishments these warnings from your word about the importance of meeting together. And Father, help us to shift our focus from what we get out of each Sunday's service to what we can give. How we can not just receive from you, but we can be your channel to help others receive from you. That we would be truly a body that encourages one another. We encourage each other with our presence. We encourage each other with our words. We encourage each other with our deeds. We thank you, Father, for the reality of your word that hammers home these points to us, Father. And we ask you, Lord, to impose these things on our minds and on our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.